You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature Podcast. We recently had a great conversation with Father Paul about this beautiful verse in Acts. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And of course, the biblical school is very critical of what we in modern circles refer to as identity. Identity is problematic. Identity is the basis for division and conflict and abuse, as we read in 1 Corinthians. And Father Paul presented a very interesting idea. He talked about the word Christian functioning in the same way that the word, for example, Flavian would have functioned in late antiquity, and that begins to put the Christian in the position of a slave as opposed to someone who is claiming, asserting, or taking on an identity. That's all I'll say. I want Father Paul to pick up the discussion, and then we'll have some follow-ups because I know Richard has some great questions today. So welcome, gentlemen. Father Paul, always excited to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I have to approach this issue from different angles at the same time. And all these angles, something I stress time and again, has to be scriptural. If we appeal to history, not in the general sense, I appeal to the background of the Roman Empire to explain things in the Bible. But one should not go to actual discussions between people regarding terms for a very simple reason that the author of scripture wants to interject his own understanding and his understanding comes from the rest of scripture. One cannot switch methodology in the approach. In my book, I explain the fact, obviously, Jesus and Christ, which is the same person but with two names, is a character. One cannot prove the historicity of that person. But regardless of that, remains the fact that Jesus is a name that has a meaning. As we know from Matthew, he saves his people from their sins. And Christ is also a name that has a meaning which is anointed. The fact that Christ is also a name is shown in our verbiage. You know, we say Christ and immediately we refer to a person. Now, This is a little bit hard for the people in the West, and especially in our times, to comprehend. But for a Semite, it is very acceptable. Let's go for Arabic. We don't have what is called personal names. All the names are functional, meaning that a word has a meaning. And since there are no uppercase letters, you have to figure out yourself from reading the sentence, whether we are referring to a person or a function. Let's say my name, Nadim, is Table Fellow. Are you talking about me or another person that bears the name of Nadim? Or you are just saying a Table Fellow. You have to figure out from the sentence. Now, in my commentary on Galatians, I spend a lot of time to explain in Christo, in Christ, from that perspective. If you recall, I say that in Christ means in the messianic community, 
By messianic, I mean in the community of Christ, because Christ is the Messiah. Let's go for the original. Christos is from the verb chrio, to anoint, and Mashiach is from the verb mashah, to anoint, and thus Mashiach is the anointed. That's all it means. And one cannot be in a person unless one uses mysticism and mystagogy, and you know my stand regarding it. It has to be discarded totally in Christ means in the messianic community that's my relationship to you when i say we are all one in christ galatians you remember we are all one in christ we pertain to him and as mark mentioned as members of his community now in 2 corinthians 1 21 and 22 we have a text which is very interesting because it tells us about this relationship we have but it is god who establishes us with you in christ and has commissioned us he has put his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee in greek we have instead of commissioned us this is the rsv let me check with kjv it has anointed us so let's dismiss what i read in rsv rsv is pitiful the original is anointed us which is chrisas imas and then he uses that other word which is found so often with the spirit which is to put his seal sfragizo and we the orthodox can refer to that because this is how we speak about our chrismation and my interest in this text is that christ is one who is anointed and we are people who are anointed also this putting the seal is found again in ephesians 130 so what we are hearing is that christ is anointed and we are anointed like him two other passages that are very important that speak of the anointment of christ is acts 4 27 when peter is speaking and he says for of a truth against thy holy child jesus i'm reading the kjv to be on solid ground whom thou hast anointed speaking to god in his prayer which is repeated in acts 10:38 how god anointed jesus of nazareth with the holy ghost and with power at the baptism so personally i deduce that this christianity that is found in the book of acts means pertaining to christ but then let me go back to my commentary on galatians and this text in acts and show the parallelism there i say that we are two in the messianic community which is the one table fellowship it's not messianic in any of the senses that we use today this congregation is messianic a messianic movement and so on and so forth i cannot accept that for a very simple reason that it's nowhere to be found in scripture but in scripture let's go to galatians we are christ's christ too we pertain to him 
We are Christ's, that would be the best translation. We are defined by him, he is not defined by us. We are defined by his being chrismated, and we are chrismated like him. Whether indeed we are chrismated or not, as in the Orthodox Church, does not matter. This is not how things function in a Roman household. If you are part of his household, he defines you because you are the slave. And in this passage in Antioch, it is precisely against that background where we have Gentile and Jew sitting at the same table, meaning in the church of Paul. From a third perspective, a Christian is a member of the Katikon Ecclesia of Paul, the house church of Paul. One cannot apply it outside that background because the definition is related to a table where both Gentile and Jew may sit together. It doesn't mean that every time you have to have one Jew and one Gentile because sometimes, let's say, there are no Jews. But the teaching of Paul regarding this table, that it is bound to the presence of the Jew, is very important. And for me, this offering, which the people like to speak about, the offering to the Church of Jerusalem and poor and so but this is taken from Galatians, that I shall never forget the poor of Jerusalem, and there is no need for me to go in all these texts, which we have in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, in Acts, in Romans chapter 15. So what Paul did, and here I would like to expand in this direction, to defend my case that whether a Jew is present or not, the church of Paul is the technically Christian church, because at every meeting, recall that text at the end of Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 16, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders, as I have established by order, to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Notice this reference to Galatia. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. When I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem, your generous offering. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. And then, you know, that all this was done on hope, because we don't know whether Jerusalem accepted or not. But the more important thing is not the actual history. It is the teaching which in scripture I have shown, it is anti-human, anti-historical. It doesn't take place. Israel and the nations in the Old Testament were sinful all the time, systematically. But the teaching remains the same. So let's try to visualize this and look from a helicopter on the community of Corinth or Galatia or Macedonia and imagine people gathering, gathered, and at one point, people have to donate in a plate that is going to the actual Jews. In my book, I explain that Judahite Jew means someone from Judea. There is no Jew just like that in the open. Jew is always related to the area of Judea, and I took my time to explain this in the book. 
I'm sorry for going in all directions because that word is connected to all these data. Someone following the law is a follower of the law. He's not necessarily a Judahite. It is the Maccabees and their follower Hasmonean, as I explain in my book, that forced this upon the Jews. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, I'm a Jew with the Jews. So the question is that, is he a Jew or is he not? But without going on this turf, what I would like to say is that this collection was going to the Jews of Jerusalem, most specifically, if you like, the top Jews, the leaders that defined what the Judeans around them are. What does this mean? It means that in the church gathered in Corinth, in the house of a pater familias, at one point, the Gentiles are reminded that the Jews are present with them and they have to think of them and they have to share with them what they were sharing at the table, meaning the teaching, but also the food according to the need of everyone. And that point is very important for me. But then it was turned around by assuming that you make a collection for any other person. This is by extension. Personally, I like it. Like in the Roman Catholic Church, in the big cathedrals, you go in and you have five, six, seven, ten, twelve stands of different donations. You want to donate to this cause or that cause or that cause. There is one for the stone building, obviously, because you have to maintain it. But the others are for other charities, for people who are not with you. However, this is an extension. That's why you are free to put or not to put. But the Pauline connection was not free. You had to do it precisely to express this teaching that this table although you don't see them. Remember, the churches of Paul were mainly Gentile. That's why I'm stressing the gentility. But you can apply it to Jews meeting on their own without Gentiles if they follow the teaching of Paul. But sticking with the text, all those Gentiles had to remember. They could have among them a few Jewish slaves that would make things easier. However, Paul is stressing the fact that they had to be one, you cannot divide in the community of Christ. Remember in Galatians, you are all one in Christ. One meaning of the same kind. Your identity is no more free slave, Jew, Gentile. Your identity is that you are Christ's. At the end of chapter 3, Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. In 3.26, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. It's very nice. In other words, you look like him. It's like everybody puts the same kind of robe. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And then please listen to 29. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed 
and heirs according to the promise. And he moves to chapter 4 to speak about the adoption of everyone, the way Christ was adopted by God, as we hear in Philippians chapter 2. Adopted means assigned. Remember that in Roman law, you never had a natural child as in our CSI TV shows and so on, figuring out the DNA. Everyone was assigned. You know, adopted is tricky because then you differentiate between by nature and by adoption. But according to the Roman law, you had to be put on the knee of the pater familias, meaning the new child is presented to the pater familias his own child and yet until he puts him on his knee the child does not become genuine you know knee in latin is genu from which we have genuine that's the meaning of true child genuine is not the way we try to explain it you know mystically if so then you are assigned so we can get away from the word adopted and use assigned sealed, anointed, whatever words we find in Scripture. Christiani is pertaining to Christ and thus functional Christ in the teaching of Paul. And it has to be explained against the background. And Antioch, as we know, is where the debate took place regarding the oneness of the table. So when... I read in, for example, Josephus, who talks about different people who claim to be messiahs. Am I understanding you correctly that the reason why Messiah or Christos functions differently in the New Testament and in Josephus is because the Bible assumes that there's only one, whereas Josephus assumes that there are multiple claimants? to the title oh, uh, Messiah? Absolutely. I mean, uh, here, again, we go back to what I said at the beginning. The scripture is its own interpreter, as Chrysostom said. The others are immediately false, non-Christ. You have the word pseudo-Christi. And by the way, to go back to Galatians, which is the blueprint of the entire New Testament, and notice how I began with it and I ended with it. We have a strange text, I mean strange for non-Semite ears, where Paul speaks about the one seed and not many seeds, which is strange for most of us because the word seed is usually in the singular. It means progeny. But I explained what Paul is referring to there again, that we cannot split. You don't have two seeds because seed means that you have a totally new entity. Like a seed is also the individual seed that you plant. But in the family, you have only one seed. That's why, for instance, in the Old Testament, Judah and Israel are lumped under one name, which is Israel. Why Israel? I explain this in my book. Why not Judah, Israel? But it doesn't matter. For my point, what matters is that how come Judah and Israel are Israel? And this combination of the two is very important in Ezekiel. You have two stocks that become one stock. And that's what Paul is saying, that 
God has ultimately one flock, which is very important. In other words, if he takes a sheep from the outside, John chapter 10, the good shepherd, and the sheep becomes member of the flock because the shepherd said so. Okay, you cannot have two flocks. I mean, an owner, a very rich shepherd, can have two flocks, but technically he assigns each flock to one shepherd. I was meeting the day before our symposium in Wichita, I had lunch with Sayyidina Basil, Bishop Basil, I say, you know, and he said to me and to the other two priests who were with us, uh, to their amazement, how he himself said, I never understood how this functioned until I went to Lebanon. He stayed at Balaman for a long time to study Arabic and music and uh, I mean to perfect his music. Then he said, you know, you go up in the mountains and then the sheep come at the end of the day. They are taken out by one person. And when they come back at the gate of each of the specific place where they are supposed to go, they start splitting and the sheep would follow the voice they recognize and they go and enter through that gate. It's Bishop Basil who said that. So these things are real. He brought it up because I was saying to him that my conviction, which I express in the book, is that the writers were not utopic. They were not talking about a Narnia that is somewhere. No, they were referring to shepherdism in the Syrian desert around them. Whether this applies to the Scottish flocks, I'm sure it doesn't, because there you have a lot of rivers and a wandering sheep can survive. But in the desert, a wandering sheep cannot survive. So here again, we see that the oneness is imposed the way it is in the family. And remember that the word family is mainly a clan, originally mishpaha in Hebrew, and it applies not necessarily to a village, to a place, but the way things go in a family. And the reference of the family is the flock, because human and animal live together. It's the same, actually. The first time the word family is used, it is used in the flood story about the animals. And the animals, very interesting. I think we spoke about this on another podcast, that they are not referred to as male and female, but they are referred to as man and his wife. In other words, the male man, ish, ishto, which is very stunning. Well, I brought all this into the picture, number one, due to my conviction that everything is interconnected. But again, you noticed, I hope, that I never switch methodology or gear. I'm following scripture, and I'm stressing the fact that at that table, you have different kinds of people. But at that table... Their ID says that they pertain to that household. And let me finish with this impressive passage from Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Apphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. He's speaking to Philemon. 
So katikon ecclesia does not mean a church house, like people say, we don't need a church, we go and meet in a house. No, it is a house because that place where you meet pertains to one person. That's why in the book of Acts, we have names. We have Lydia, we have Jason. It's not you rent a house. But this is what happened later, like every one of us thinks, because like you in Minneapolis, you just purchase a land, a church, and you're meeting there, and so this is ours. Well, it could be yours. But for Paul, is it Christ's or not? That's his interest. Who is the boss? And obviously, Paul is playing on that because at the end of the letter, he says, having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say, but withal prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. The moment Paul sets foot in this house... If Philemon considers him as the apostle, then Paul becomes the senior and he decides the identity of the people there. It's a marvelous letter and I wrote a commentary on it. People ask me now, where should we begin? My answer is flat since the last four years. With Philemon, you have everything you need there. I can also answer the question by saying, even if you begin with Josephus Flavius, remains one thing that although there are many messiahs, as I mentioned, one messiah is the messiah. The rest are false, like in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. The true prophet, I mean, we start adding these words true, is only one. It's in the book of Jeremiah, it's Jeremiah, and in Ezekiel, it's Ezekiel. The rest are false prophets. Interesting, the word false prophets is only in Greek because in the original Hebrew of Jeremiah, there are prophets, but they are not teaching the right teaching. So scripture does not lose its time into theology. Who is the true priest or not the true priest? Is the Roman Catholic a priest or is he not a priest? May I call him father or may I not call him? It doesn't matter. For a very simple reason, even in orthodoxy, if a priest or a bishop is teaching the wrong teaching, that person is excommunicated. He's no more bishop or priest. So there you go. So why add false? You don't need that. But here again, it's an issue of language. To go back to my example, in Jeremiah, in the original Hebrew, you don't have false. You don't have pseudo-prophete. I know I went in all directions, but because this is a central term that has to do with what people refer to as identity. What makes you a member of the Pauline House Church? Remember how in my more recent books, I keep adding the Pauline Gospel, not the Gospel the scriptural God or the Pauline God and not just God. And this is something we have to be trained into by having the people listen to texts. And when people tell me, but your answer doesn't seem an answer, I say, this is when I'm convinced that I have answered your questions, but you don't want to listen. (laughs) 
you're still bringing your own definition and terminology, but I'm trying to begin with the text and not use some texts to back my statement. But begin with a statement, and I'm thankful to you that at the beginning you referred to a text from Acts. What does it mean? And that's what I tried to do. So if Scripture is assuming there is only one Christ, then to use the term Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ would be redundant if there's only one Christ. But I know you've gone into a lot of detail about what those titles and names mean, Christ Jesus and Jesus Christ, that they're not redundant. And without having to go into a whole other lecture, can you help us understand or summarize what those terms then mean? Yeah, Jesus has to do with salvation. I mean, the name Jesus is found already in the Old Testament. Joshua is Jesus. When you read Hebrews in Greek, both Joshua of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament are rendered through the one word Greek, which is Jesus. But in Greek, it doesn't make any sense. In Hebrew, it does make sense. So it is related to salvation, and in my book, without, uh, I can't enter in detail now, one has to read my book, uh, why the choice? Because if I say that the two heroes, uh, Paul and Jesus, are characters, remain the fact why the names were chosen. So I explain the choice of Jesus along the lines of salvation, and the name slash title Christ against the background of anointment, which is specifically the anointment of the kings. Repeatedly, we hear that Saul was anointed, David is anointed, and thus is someone who is chosen, and thus he is the leader of the flock. Let's say God is the shepherd owner. He assigns David as shepherd of his people, his flock, and the people are defined by him. You know, in Psalms, the person of the king is mentioned as Hasid, the one who indeed loves God and is committed to him, and his people are the Hasidim. So here again, you have this language of pertaining to. That for me explains why Paul used we are Christ's and not Jesus's. I mean, each of the two words has its function. The one is salvation of all, obviously, and the second one is being assigned to that mission or function. And since the anointing can apply to the leader and to the members of the people, unlike Jesus, because Joshua saves his people, the people do not save Joshua. The link between the leader and the follower fits more easily and readily the anointment. There is one Jesus, if you like, but many anointed. <laughs> but to differentiate between the anointed and all the rest of us, the New Testament coined Christiani because the New Testament could have called them Christi in the plural. It works. I'm not entering into theology there is only one Christ. And so all I'm saying is that it works. But the coinage of Christiani was genial in the sense that it differentiated between the anointed and the many anointed. 
the Greek, chrysas, having anointed, in Acts, when it's applied to Jesus, is the same one that is found in 2 Corinthians 1.21 when it speaks of God anointing us, the believers. So the result should have been that we are also anointed as Christ is anointed, and thus we could be referred to as Christi. I mean, in the Semitic languages, at least to the ear, Masih in Arabic is Christ. The plural is Musaha. And this is the word that we find, that we are the Musaha, those who have been anointed by God. But then Christiani is translated as Masihi, Masihiyun. It's a different word. But the result is the same. One more time. But in the case of Jesus, the result is not the same. Jesus saves on the part of God as Joshua did. And the people are saved. Remember in the book of Joshua, it is the obedience of Joshua that secured that the people would be fine and at peace in the land. After he died, problems arose. So these two names, and I explain in my book, I can't enter in detail why it's a much larger issue that they brought into the picture these two appellations. But to answer your question as to the differentiation between the two, that would be my answer. Thanks very much, Father Paul. This has been extremely helpful. I don't know, Richard, do you have more questions? I probably do, but I have a duty to do more research before I ask any more questions. It's been really helpful to me to understand more deeply how this appellation Christian ties into obedience to the teaching of the one Messiah. Yes, the one Messiah as teacher through the lips of Paul, remember in my commentary on 2 Corinthians. The face of Christ means the lips of Paul. Fantastic, Father Paul. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much, Father Great Paul. Great episode this morning, and you'll keep Richard busy now for at least a month before <laughs> the next discussion. <laughs> so that you, Mark, and I can enjoy our coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you All right, very much, gentlemen, Father. take care. Thank you. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.